Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast, a look back at some of the show's highlights this week. Now yesterday, um, a gentleman walked into the Women's Day office and revealed himself as a blast from Manx Radio's past and he is with us now. Chris Musk uh, operated the London office of Manx Radio from its inception in 1964 until he moved on in 1974 to other local commercial radio stations in England. Um, Chris, radio back in 1964, was it a very different beast then? We had vinyl for a start. There's nothing more sexy than a seven-inch single disc. Uh, LPs are a special item in as much that you have so many tracks. But the old 45, the blast from the past, the wayback playbacks, those golden oldies, the rave from the graves. Let's just swing down memory lane and relive some of those halcyon hits from yesteryear. That was what we used to sort of, those are the riders we used to say, um, going back in time on The Sound of the Nation, this is a Manx Radio flashback. All the little cliches, all those little lineage parts that made up radio to be fun and entertaining. And Manx Radio already had it in those days. But we had to learn because we had no experience. In fact, when Manx Radio started at Signpost Corner in a caravan way back in time in 64, most of the presenters were from Australia, from South Africa and America. Chris Krukel had learned his skills, honed them in Kenora in Canada. Uh, Clark McKay came over, as did David Davies from South Africa, on Lorenzo Marx Radio, which the boss owned, Richard L. Mayer. So they all combined to help people like Stuart Lord, Norman Shaw, um, Louise Quirk, to formulate a, a very strong local, independent local radio station. And your job was to interview all the big stars, and yes. then you sent those interviews back. Who, who are we talking about? Well, in those days, first of all, may I just say... Going back to this crowded plane or this plane with people on it, coming back from the Isle of Man, two-ton Tessie O'Shea, who had performed at the Lido or the Gaiety here one weekend, had the seat next to me. Now, if you've ever heard of the phrase two-ton Tessie, she was large. And she said, Chris, I'm sorry to have to share two seats for the two seats here on, but I will take you to the Dorchester for afternoon tea when we go back next week. So that was my reward. The the highlight of my times here were undoubtedly, I think, when having interviewed all the Miss World contestants from the outset in 1967, when Madeleine Hartog-Bell won for Peru, always, every year, this is Miss United Kingdom live on Manx Radio. This is Miss South Africa, Miss United States of America, but never Miss Isle of Man. I bet you found that job so hard, Chris. Well, you had to learn what their statistics were, whether the (laughs) eyes were brown. They all wanted, when you asked them, if you do win Miss United States of America... Marjorie Wallace, for example, who did win in 1974. Not that you remember. What, yes, what do you hope for? And they invariably would say world peace. And it was always refreshing when one of the contestants said something else. But in 1977, lo and behold, up pops Helen Shimon, and she became the first Missile of Man in the Miss World competition. And thereafter, you, this island, was represented, but, but never before that. So that was a, a big step. Other people who come to mind uh, very quickly were Ringo Starr. I was walking past Three Savile Row in London's West End near Regent Street and never had had good fortune to have the boys on the programme. When up popped Ringo Starr, and I said, Ringo, please, 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 I've been trying for ages with Derek Taylor, the public relations manager of the Beatles, to undertake an interview for my programme, Star Studied Star Interview, going out in the Isle of Man on a Saturday morning. 
And he said, my uncle lives in the Isle of Man. He said, it's a great place in his Liverpool accent. So he said, why don't you come round to my house? So next week, took a taxi to Hampstead and undertook an 18 and a half minute exclusive interview. And it was very, even though the other boys weren't there, John, Paul and, and so forth, I was able to say, Manx Radio, this week on Saturday Star Interview, boasts the fabulous Beatles. Ringo Starr, exclusive, from his back garden, talks to you all. On the show, fairly recently, we have been speaking about the power of letters. And what you're about to hear is part of a letter that was sent to today's studio guest back in June this year. Dear Vivian, well, this is a letter I never thought I would have the opportunity to write but I'm so happy to have the chance to finally put pen to paper and say hello to you. I've been wanting to connect with you for a long time. Firstly, please excuse the typewritten format of this letter. My handwriting is, unfortunately, absolutely horrendous, and as I would like you to have the chance to read it, I thought it best to type rather than write. Vivian, I want you to know that I fully understand and appreciate the circumstances that led to me being adopted, and that I have nothing other than admiration and respect for your decision in what must have been very difficult circumstances. I know that what you did was out of love for me and for your want to give me the very best start in life. I do not think badly of you in any way or bear you any ill feeling at all. You gave me a fantastic start in life with wonderfully loving, supportive and encouraging parents who gave me the best gift a child can receive the confidence that I could be and achieve anything I wanted. I was told I was adopted at a very young age, probably five or six, and as I got older I was told the outlined circumstances of why I was adopted. There were no secrets between my mum and dad, and I was very lucky to have a close, loving bond with them throughout their lives. Sadly, they are both now past, and I miss them terribly. I also wanted you to know you gave my mum the opportunity to be what she wanted most, a mother. You may know that she was unable to have children of her own and I was therefore a gift that she never thought she'd receive. She thought of you every year on my birthday and always said a little prayer to thank you for your sacrifice and to wish you only good things. Viv Cornelius, that letter was from your son Mark. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to receive that. It was extremely emotional. I cried buckets for probably two or three days because I never in my wildest dreams thought that was going to happen. Take us back, Viv, to the mid-1960s. You were how old? When I you was 19. 19 when you were pregnant. Tell us what happened. Um, well, obviously I got pregnant. Um, but back then, of course, it was looked upon as a cardinal sin to have a child out of wedlock. And yes, I was in a relationship with somebody who I'd been seeing since I was about 16. But it wasn't working out. It didn't work out. Um, My mother made arrangements through the church for me to go across to the UK because the mere word abortion wasn't heard of then. You know, you you just didn't do it. Um, So arrangements were made. I was packed off to Manchester. Um, I was put in an unmarried mother's home for a period of time, um, probably about six months in total. Uh, We had to go out to work whilst we were there to to pay for the accommodation, etc. Then I had Mark. Uh, I looked after him for the first six weeks of his life. 
and then I had to give him away. And that was the last I ever saw of him. Giving away um, your son must have just been... Well, I can't even imagine, Viv. It was heart-wrenching. There was no other option, though? You didn't no. have any option to keep I him? I had no option. We even had to sign paperwork to say that this would never be spoken of again, that we would never, ever make try and make contact with either the adoptive parents or with the child. And that was, to me, that was law. That's what I had to do. And for the last 50 years, that is exactly what I have done. I have never mentioned it to anyone. Even my mother, God rest her, um, who I lost about 10, 12 years ago, we never spoke about it. When I got back home, it was, it was just a taboo subject. And it was, you know, nice girls don't do that kind of thing. And, you know, you, you're sort of a second-class citizen now. You, you really cannot be viewed as marriage material because you've been spoiled. And these are all the things that used to be put through your head to make you think that you were less than anybody else. And trying to explain that now to some people in, in today's generation um, it is practically unheard of. So for you, when you, you came back home then, obviously you'd been through the pregnancy, you'd had Mark, you'd had to give him away. Did you know anything about the family that he went to? No. No, you were told absolutely nothing. You weren't allowed to meet them. We went to a specific place in Manchester, which I think was the local town hall. I was kept in one room. Somebody came in, took Mark out of my arms, and that was it. There was basically, there's your suitcase, you can make your own way home now. Did you name him Mark? I did. I did. And I was absolutely delighted to find that his adoptive parents actually kept the name Mark. So when you came back then, Viv, how how do you go about keeping something like that to yourself? I mean, presumably the 17th of March every year was, was a very difficult time for you. It was. Um, and of course it's St Patrick's Day as well, which highlights the, the date itself. Um, but every year it was a question of I'd wake up on the 17th of March and I'd wish him happy birthday. But that was all I could do. Because I didn't know where he was. I wasn't allowed to contact him. And it it was just the way it was. And, and I had to accept it. You did meet someone else, though, and you went on to have another son. I um, did. Again, that must have been a really confusing time mentally for you. It was, because it was one of those situations where you fight with yourself. Do I tell the people that, or do I tell my, my husband that, you know, I've had an illegitimate child? Would it affect the relationship? And then you look at the other side of the coin and you think, well, no, I can't go ahead and, and do that because I've been sworn to secrecy and I've signed paperwork to that effect. Um, and then you think, well, what difference would it make to anybody now if they did know? And then you think, no, no, I'm... you made to feel ashamed of yourself. And that's the way I felt for, for years that I could not speak to anyone 
about it or about Mark or about those first six weeks when I used to push him around in a pram um, around Manchester area and, and he was mine for six weeks. In a, in a situation like that, Viv, ordinarily a, a young person would turn probably to their mother in that situation and I know you're saying you were sworn to secrecy but behind closed doors were you able to talk to your parents about it at all? Was there any support there or was it literally from that point onwards they didn't discuss it with you either? No. My my mother um, actually left my father when I was about three months old. So I never knew a father figure myself um, until my mother remarried but that wasn't until I was about 21, 22. Um, so it was basically just my mother and my older brother and my mother came with me initially when I was packed off to Manchester and then I didn't see my mother again until actually after I'd given birth to Mark. Um, but the I can always remember the response that I, I had from my mum when we got Mark dressed, put him in the pram and were, went out for a walk and... Uh, she turned around and she said to me, you know, if you were married, this would be one of the happiest days of my life. But unfortunately, it isn't. Um, and that hurt. That hurt very deeply. And that was the kind of response or attitude I expected to get from anybody else that I told about Mark. And I wasn't prepared to take that. I wanted people to accept me for who I was, what I was, what I could do, um, and not to judge me. Well, Viv, you lived with this, um, what, for 50 years? I did. And then in June this year, you got mm -hmm. a phone call. Well, I got a, a letter to start with from Norfolk County Council. Well, I didn't, actually. It was my ex-husband that got a letter because they managed to trace my first marriage certificate asking my ex-husband if he knew of me um, and he got in touch with me um, told me the gist of the letter and this gentleman by the name of Chris Hall wanted me to phone him on such and such a number and I said well I don't know anybody in Norfolk I've got no association with Norfolk but then of course typical curiosity got the better of me and I rang the number and this gentleman said does the year 1966 mean anything to you and I typical I said yes the year we won the World Cup <laughs> and he said well I'll be a little bit more specific does the 17th of March 1966 mean anything to you and I said St Patrick's Day <laughs> did it really not so, go through your head at yes, that point of course it did course it did but the first thoughts that go through your head are why now that was my first gut reaction is why now and then I thought no I have got to take this further I now that I know that Mark is trying to get in touch with me um, I really have got to take it further so the, the arrangement was that Mark was going to do a letter to me, which you've clipped a little bit off there, 
Um, that was then sent to Norfolk Council. They then sent that letter to me because obviously he wasn't allowed to know exactly where I was and vice versa. So I responded to that letter um, and I sent it off on the Saturday, never expecting to hear anything back immediately. Uh, I was sitting watching Wimbledon one Wednesday afternoon, about ten past three. The phone rang and it was, hello. And all I got down the phone was this wonderfully rich voice saying, is that Vivian? This is Mark. <laughs> well, it's a good job I was sitting down because I think I'd have fell down. Well, we didn't come off the phone until nearly six o'clock. And we just talked and talked. And we actually met that following weekend for the first time. I just have to ask you, um, though, Viv, because you had kept this a secret mm. for such a long time. Mark gets in touch. You have that amazing connection with him. How then do you go about telling the people in your life about him? With a great deal of difficulty. <laughs> it, it actually happened, um, the phone call that I made to Norfolk was during CT week. And I had guests staying with me at the time. And I'd made the phone call actually from my bedroom instead of in the lounge. And my husband, my current husband, came in and looked at me and he saw the floods of tears and everything else, you know, and it was, what on earth is wrong? And I said, well, there's no easy way of saying it. I said, I had an illegitimate son. I said he was now trying to contact me. And he just put his arm around my shoulder and he said, oh, what difference do you think that's going to make to me? Mm. And, well, that set me off again. And then I said, but I have got to tell Paul. This is your other son? This is my other son that's in, who's actually in America. Um, I said, I have to tell him. I said, now, Paul will either jump one way or he'll jump another. Because with my son, it's either black or it's white. There's no grey area in the middle. So I took the bull by the horns on the same day, telephoned America and... I said, right, Paul, are you sitting down? I said, because I've got something to tell you. And he said, Mum, what's the matter? What's the matter? What's... And I said, I'm fine. He said, you don't sound fine. He said, what's the matter? And I said, just sit down. I said, and be quiet for two minutes. I said, you have got a half-brother. And it sort of went quiet for a split second. And then all I got down the phone was, wow, when can I meet him? Um, so everything has worked out absolutely brilliantly. Viv, we are so <laughs> delighted that you've been able to join us on the show this afternoon. We will be talking uh, more about what you've been through, especially over the past uh, few months, a little bit later. But you're listening to Women Today on Manx Radio. It is 17 minutes to three. We are joined live in the studio this afternoon by a mother who this year has been reunited with the son she had to give up for adoption back in 1966. We've had a lovely email from Pam, uh, which says, So, so pleased that Viv has at last been reunited with her son. I've shed a tear listening to her truly heartbreaking account. 
account. As someone of the same age as Viv, I well remember how things were back then. Girls were either expected to marry the father of her child, if that wasn't possible for whatever reason, she was expected to give her baby up. If she didn't do either of those things and she was fortunate to have parents who stood by her, the whole situation was deemed her fault and she'd let them down. No nice fella was going to want her. In the dreadful parlance of the time, she was damaged goods. Thank heavens things have changed. Um, well, Viv, it was uh, earlier this year, in June this year, uh, that you got uh, a letter to say your son Mark had been trying to trace you, what, for around 18 months? I believe about 18 months he'd been trying to, to find out where I was. Well, to find out what those 18 months were like, I'm delighted to say we now have Mark uh, live on the phone. Um, Mark, talk us through uh, what you went through in trying to find Viv. Yeah, the process is, is, in terms of being an adopted child, is, is actually quite straightforward. Um, the, you are um, initially attached to a, um, a social worker who works for adoption services. Um, and um, I was assigned a guy who specifically deals with adult adoption cases. Um, and he... Um, sort of talked me both through the process and also through some of the likely emotions I was going to sort of feel during the time that I was searching for Viv. Um, because, of course, you don't really know um, what you're getting yourself into. Um, and whilst you think you've thought of everything, of every possible scenario, there are you know, obvious things that you, you haven't sort of considered. Um, but, of course, trying to find a birth mother is often more difficult than trying to find a birth father because, in all likelihood, um, the person is married, their name has changed, um, they may have moved away, um, etc. So um, the process was actually quite, quite lengthy um, from getting my initial adoption records um, and finding out more about wh why I'd been adopted. Um, and then sort of through the process of um, working with a researcher um, to try and identify where Viv was, uh, whether she was still alive, etc., um, to um, then uh, actually w working with a work researcher directly on the island um, to, to eventually find Gosh, Mark, you know, we've heard from Viv's point of view um, that initial letter that she got from, from the council saying that you were trying to, to find her. I'm guessing from your point of view, that time, waiting to see if, if she actually would want to, to make any contact with you, that must have just been difficult, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it, it was. The whole process... It, I'm <laughs> Uh, Viv and I are similar in, in a number of ways, um, and uh, impatience is, is one of our uh, one of our virtues. Um, and I I um, I honestly thought that um, you know it, we we'd got to an impasse. It took uh, we had been at it for about a year on and off, and we were really getting nowhere. Um, and then. Um, he, uh, the, the, the social worker sort of got in contact and said, gosh, we found her. Um, and um, he then wrote to her, I received this letter. But it, that whole process of um, 
him coming back to me and saying, we found this, to me receiving the letter, to then us talking, was then incredibly quick, <laughs> incredibly quick, within, I think it was probably within days yes. um, of, of us sort of, uh, of, of us identifying where Viv was and, and, you know, the fact that she was, she was still on the island, etc. Um, that whole process was actually pretty quick, um, which in some ways was a real relief um, after, after such a long process. Um, really interesting, Mark, that you said uh, you and Viv are, are similar in a number of ways. Have you both found that? I mean, you have you have since met. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're in regular contact now. Are, are you quite similar? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> in in some ways, yeah. There is definitely, um, you know, the whole nature v nurture argument is quite interesting because I, I, undoubtedly I am a product of my adoptive parents. Um, but there are just certain things that you know we've we've talked about or we've 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 sort of discovered about each other that, that we could say, gosh, yeah, that's that. I can absolutely see where I get that from, um, without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, Mark, you have a half brother who lives in America, and I understand you've you've had FaceTime contact with him. I have, yeah. And what was that like? I mean, because that must be pretty weird. Yeah, well, particularly because I'm an only child. Um, so, of course, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm 50. You go through life um, completely thinking, you know, gosh, I'm, you know, no brothers, and, which has never bothered me in the slightest, if I'm honest. Um, but to then suddenly discover at, at 50 and him at, at his age to discover you've got a half brother is is actually quite um, quite startling, really, um, and something that you know you. you you know, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a firm believer in what you never have, you never miss. Um, but it, it's quite interesting to suddenly then think, gosh, I've actually got somebody who is related to me, um, mm. uh, genetically related, which is, 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 for an adopted child, is quite odd. And Mark, we heard part of your letter at the start of the show um, that you, you sent to Viv. And in it, um, you talked about your adoptive parents um, and just how grateful they were to Viv for giving them the chance of being parents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my um, mother had ovarian cancer in her 30s, which would be in the 1950s, I guess. Um, so that um, meant that she she couldn't have children of her own. Um, and um, they, I think, at about four, the age of 40, they decided that they wanted to adopt. Um, and then went through the process. But absolutely, I mean, my mum always, always said that she always thought about Viv on my birthday. She always said a prayer for her on, on you know, on my birthday. Um, and I think was just, you know, absolutely um, delighted that they were able to raise a child as a result of somebody else's sacrifice, really. And you always knew um, from for a very early age, sort of five, six, that that was the case, yeah, that you were adopted. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I was told when I was, I think, probably five or six, and then given probably more detail as I, as I got that bit older in terms of some of the circumstances. Um, I knew my birth name from that um, time, from being probably about 11 onwards. Um, and as Liv has probably already said, my parents retained my, my birth name. Um, so I was, I was, um, I obviously continued to be called Mark. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it, you know, it was, it was never a, it was never a secret. It was never kept from me. Um, I had a really good relationship. 
relationship with my with my parents. So um, it was always a very open and honest um, situation. I knew exactly why I'd been adopted, um, and I knew um, the circumstances, you know, as to why my parents wanted to adopt. Women today, brought to you by Citywing.com for your next flight away. The camel's hump is an ugly lump, which well you may see at the zoo, but uglier yet is the hump we get from having too little to do. Kiddies and grown-ups too, if you hadn't got enough to do, we get the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frowsly head and snarly, yarly voice. We shiver and scowl and we grunt and growl at our bath and our boots and our toys. And there ought to be a corner for me, and I know there is one for you, when we get the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. The cure for this ill is not to sit still or froust with a book by the fire, but take a large hoe and a shovel also, and dig till you gently perspire. And then you'll find that the sun and the wind and the gin of the garden too have lifted the hump, the horrible hump, the hump that is black and blue. I get it as well as you, if I haven't got enough to do. We all get a hump, camellius hump, kiddies and grown-ups too. Something is coming. Something hungry for blood. What is it? The Demogorgon! So uh, I am here with Hollywood prop master Linda East. Linda, it's ace to see you again. Nice to see you, Christy. I'm excited to be here for the film festival. It's great. And this is one of those things you always seem to manage to get your hand in on what ends up being hit shows but you know Stranger Things has just gone absolutely nuts but presumably you didn't know that was going to happen when you were on it. I'd like to say it was all part of my cunning plan but um, no I didn't know. I did when I read it I knew it was good. It touched something in me uh, on a nostalgia level. Um, Those kids are phenomenal. Every so often you work on a project where everybody is on their A-game and everything works and meshes and you do get lighting in a bottle and I think that's what we managed to do with this one. So, And it must have been a really difficult one because of course it was a period piece, it was 80s and you, are, you pay such attention to detail when you are working. You had to source some really interesting things. What were some of the biggest challenges? Uh, the bikes were a big deal. We had to, I had to basically build 1980s bikes from 2015 BMX bikes from Walmart uh, with a mixture of um, all sorts of pieces from restoration websites and uh, old bikes that I found. See you tomorrow. Good night, ladies. Kiss your mom night for me. Will is, is missing. I don't know where he is. 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. What about the other time? The one. The one. What were they like to work with the children? Fantastic. They were so great, so professional. 
every single one of them knew their lines, they hit their marks, they could do the same thing again and again and again. Um, they were delightful, uh, they were charming, they were polite. Uh, really, really fun, and I think they're all going to be massive. And it will be exciting to be part of it. I hope it goes on for many years. Uh, is that a little clue that there's definitely going to be more Stranger Things? Uh, I know there's a season two because I go back to, well, it's been officially announced, so I'm not, you know, leaking anything. Um, I go back to work in a couple of weeks. I know that they've talked about wanting to do many, but like any media project, you're only as good as your last series. And I did True Detective season two, so we'll leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> But the, the likes of Stranger Things, you know, it takes off like that. You have sourced some items, like, for instance, the Demogorg and all those little bits and pieces that are going to go be the stuff of legend in the future, potentially. What happens with those props when, when the film finishes? Um, all the hero ones get inventoried and boxed and, and stored with the production company. Um, every so often, one might make it home with me, maybe... <laughs> You did bring a few things for us to see tonight. Tell us about that. Yes, I did actually bring a Demogorgon with me. Um, but he jumped in my suitcase. What could I do, Duffers? I'm sorry. Um, I had a copy of the um, missing poster, Will's missing poster. I had um, some stuff from True Detective. I had Sebastian Valmont's journal from Cool Intentions. And just real quick, uh, the Duffer brothers, they seem to have come from absolutely nowhere. They're obviously going to have a really good future ahead of them. Uh, they've been making movies since they were like seven years old. And they're twins. It's like having two bodies in one brain. Sometimes I think for a director, you want to ask somebody else, do you think that's a good idea? And with the Duffers, they get to ask each other that question. But they're also savvy enough to know that sometimes you have to, you know, they know what to give up. You know, there's always things that you have to give up. Finally. Do you really think it was a coincidence that we found her at the same place where Will disappeared? Something is going on here! Is there any way that you could reach him? Yes. We are talking about the campaign to recognise the mother of Emmeline Pankhurst here in the Isle of Man because Sophia Crane was born in Laxey in 1833. She later married Robert Goulden and moved to Manchester where Emmeline, along with the, some of her sisters, were born. But interestingly, there is a group over here. It's called the Friends of Sophia Goulden and we're joined by two members, Lynn Owens and Christine Cowley. And really what it is you want, Lynn, is a permanent memorial to Sophia. Oh, very much so. It's, I know it's just a symbol um, but symbols are very, very vital because it, it teaches people who's gone before us. It's our inheritance. And we were talking earlier about how really as far as um, Sophia's influence on the Isle of Man and, and how we live today, it's really a sort of a buried history because we don't typically know very much about her. When did you first find out about Sophia Golden? Um, I think I, I found out about it on a bit of a Wikipedia crawl one night, uh, a couple of a good few years ago now, and uh, then I actually happened to be attending St John's WI and, and saw Lynn right. bringing it up at yeah. that meeting. I'd gone along as a visitor, and that's what really made me think. Actually, you know, we really should do something about it. So when she put the resolution forward, I was, you know, all in favour and, and really wanted to get involved and. That's why I, you know, come on board to help, especially with the Facebook page that we've got. And do you think it's possible to really put into words just what a difference 
she did make to our lives today because I know the focus is, has historically always been on Emily and, and, and what she did but obviously she she got that that fight from somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, when we've read about um, Emmeline's life, she herself credits her mother having brought her to the suffrage meeting at age 12. She said she came away a committed suffragist and she took that forward. And the fact that her and her siblings were brought up in this environment, both um, Sophia and her husband Robert were very involved in campaigning, not just for women's suffrage, but also for um, anti-slavery. anti-slavery. They were really involved in that and, and were also met some of the people from the States as part of that. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that environment just can't be understated. Would you say that she... Um signals the, the root of feminism in some ways? I'd like to think so, yes. Yeah. Would you class yourself as a feminist, Lynn? No, I wouldn't actually. <laughs> no, um, this is where we, we tend to <laughs> fall out a bit because I'm for equality, not just one sex above the other. I, I think we should all be treated fairly. And but- in my view, I think feminism is although it's the word feminism is focusing on the female, it's because at the moment women are the you know, the sex that's being hard done by a little bit. And for me, to bring equality, you have to fight for the women to be equal. And feminism became a bit of a dirty word, and I think that's a sad thing. And a lot more women are reclaiming it now as, as something to be proud of. Because it's interesting, Christy, you've got a bit of an issue with the word feminism. A little bit, but for the reasons that Christine stated, really, I think, because um, I'm, I suppose I'm more similar to Lynn in that I do think it's it's more about... I would say more about the individual having their rights, mm-hmm. no matter what sure. their gender is. Um, but that, in, in that, in, its, in essence, is equality. But I think that the unfortunate thing about feminism, it has been absolutely necessary because we wouldn't be where we are now without it. But I think, unfortunately, now it is sort of linked with that whole idea of sort of, you know, man-hating in a way. And I, I, mm. I, I, that, I'm, I presume right. you would say that's unfair, Christine, to Absolutely, suggest this. Yeah. Surely it, that, that image has yeah. only come from the men who just feel a little bit threatened by it. Though. Oh, I know. And the term feminazi, which I think is just a hideous term, I can't stand it. Uh, but it has come from the second wave of feminism in the 70s, you know, the idea of burn your bra, don't shave your armpits. And that's where a lot of people have grown up with this idea that that's what it's all about, uh, real militancy. But it, it isn't. It's about making sure that we're all treated equally and the only way to do that is to push forward the cause of women because we're the ones that have been held back. And I'm not sure it is just you saying, Beth, it's, that's a view of the men. I don't think it is, actually. I think it's quite unfortunate there are some women out there who, in the name of feminism, are, as you say, quite militant and mm. are quite hateful about men yeah. sometimes mm. when they yeah. talk about it. But then when we think about, you know, if we think about the suffrage movement and... Uh, what an influence that had i'm sure they had to be like that in order to achieve <coughs> what they achieved Can, sorry if the, the the suffrage movement was started by a man mm. we all tend to forget this it was john stuart mills that actually brought this issue before um, the uk parliament and but over here we won the rights to vote because of a man um can't remember his name offhand but it was him that put it forward at, at, at Tim World. And so we can't say, you know, it's not, it's all women. It's not, it's, yeah. it's, it's equality. And the term suffrage itself just means the right to vote. It and does. it's in the yeah, same in the does. States, it included, you know, blacks who were disenfranchised. Suffrage meant them too. Yeah. And then in the UK, people don't understand the difference between suffrage and suffragette. And suffragette was a derogatory term that was made up. The, the Daily Mail. Exactly, that the WSPU, the Women's um, Social and Political Union that Emmeline founded, they thought, do you know what, we're going to reclaim this, we'll own mm. this term. And there was a suffrage movement 
and then the suffragettes were like you know the, the the little gang separate from that who were a little bit more militant at the time and they were militant so in terms of, of your um quest in your sort of feminism um christine what do you think there is still to achieve for women so much absolutely so mm. much i mean equal pay is is one that some people don't even believe is an issue i mean i've read so many articles about it where you know men will comment and women but mostly men comment that they don't think it even exists the fact that the burden of childcare always tends to fall more heavily on a woman than on a man that women will can be questioned in an interview they shouldn't it's illegal but they, they do get questions as to what their childcare plans might be what their their plans for having children are no no man ever gets asked that no man ever gets oh who's looking after your kids it just doesn't happen and, and these are simple basic things that need to be changed it's still down to equal opportunity yeah not just equal pay, equal opportunity in everything. Well, we are talking uh, about the campaign then to get this uh, statue in memory of Sophia Goulden to be built in Laxey, all being well. Any ideas as to how much that's going to cost? It's too early to tell. We're looking for a Manx sculptor. Please, anybody out there that can do it, please get in touch. And to how do we know what she looked like? Well, we've got one photograph. That's the only thing that I've been able to dig up. And, uh, Christine, you mentioned the Facebook uh, page, which is for the Friends of Sophia Golden. About, what, 70 members to that now? At the moment, yep. So it's growing slowly and uh, every every member helps. So it's always fantastic to get people involved in that, joining and finding out what we're doing. And we're also sharing information about suffrage and, you know, women's issues as well. So so if anybody would like to, to get along and help you with your cause, presumably oh, yeah. welcome new members. Please come along. Men yep. or women. Anybody. It's National Poetry Day, so we want to know what your favourite poem is and why, and if you can send us a copy, we'll try and read through as many as possible. First of all, have a listen to this poem, which relates to our studio guests this afternoon. I saw a child who couldn't walk, sit on a horse and start to talk. I saw a child, no legs below, sit on a horse and make him go. I saw a child who could just crawl, get on a horse and sit up tall. I saw a child born into strife, take up and hold the reins of life. And that same child was heard to say, thank God for showing me the way. Thank you so much for downloading the Women Today podcast. As ever, if there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show or something you think we should be talking about, then we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via email. It's womentoday at manxradio.com or you can go to the Women Today Facebook page, like and follow the page while you're there or we're also on Twitter. It's at MRWomenToday. Until next time. Goodbye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.